episode 357 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Step Joe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're expressing here today do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, our pets, uh, and maybe not even ours three weeks from today. The we're just going to do a news roundup today, uh, and we're going to have a great panel for it. Uh, we got David Chris, founder of Culper Partners uh, LLC, with decades of experience in intelligence and law enforcement. Uh, we're going to have Jordan Schneider, who is the China tech analyst at the Rhodium Group and the host of the excellent China Talk podcast and newsletter. And we've got Jamil Jaffer, uh, who's the executive director of the National Security Institute and more or less 100 other institutions in Washington. Uh, uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur in today's program. So let's, let's start with the international element uh, of last week's news. I thought, Jordan, the most significant thing that we saw were a couple of stories out of the Washington Post about how well China has managed to avoid U.S. controls that were meant to prevent it from developing supercomputers that could aid in the design of hypersonic missiles. Looks like that effort failed and the U.S. government has a, a new strategy up its sleeve. Yes, it's, it, it appears they do. First, I want to throw this topic back to you, Stuart, with a, um, with a sort of media literacy question. So on April 7th, we have a long Washington Post piece talking about how American and Taiwanese technology is going into these supercomputers, which while also, well, so these supercomputers, which while on the one hand can be used for medical research and predicting the weather and all these very anodyne things are really the classic dual use technology because it also helps you calculate missile trajectories and fly fighter jets, fly fighter jets better and, and what have you and design new and design uh, nuclear weapons. That's but what's the government's what's the U.S. government's thinking when they reveal this as an issue the day before they say they're doing something about it? So I, I, I think it's just preparation of the policy battlefield or or possibly uh, the story started to leak and some reporters asked, why are you doing this? And the, the explanation became the story before the fact of the sanctions. But what's interesting about this, I think, in part is this probably, these sanctions are not going to solve the problem that the government's addressing. What they've said is U.S. companies can't sell to a bunch of Chinese companies that were building, using, in some cases, American design companies, using TSMC for chip manufacture, designing chips that uh, they then sold uh, for uh, research by the PLA, among others, because they were the best supercomputers around. They can still do most of those things. They may not be able to, to use US designs, but they can still use TSMC unless the government takes the next step and says, if you have US technology in your, in your factory, you can't sell to the Chinese without going through our export licensing process. That's going to be another big step and it's going to have a big impact on TSMC. And sooner or later, that is going to become a pretty tough burden for TSMC to carry. Yeah, what, what you're referring to, Stuart, is the uh, foreign direct product rule, which is something which was famously applied to Huawei and gave them a ton of trouble, uh, forcing the firm basically to sell out, to sell off uh, a few of their extraordinarily profitable businesses in the phone handset space. And even for all the chips, they, they saw this coming and all the chips that they were stockpiling, eventually those run out and you have to adapt to the, this new situation. And while Huawei is really trying its darndest to design out as much Western technology as they can, it's an enormously difficult road to hoe and, and likely going to take place on a decade or even decades long process of building out the EDA tools and the and the sort of like design architecture to to not use the likes of the likes of an arm or a or an x86. I think the US is actually remarkably lucky to be doing this at a time when there's a massive chip shortage, so that it's easy to sell chips that you can't sell to China elsewhere, or at least to some Chinese companies. So it, it happens to be a very good time, even though a large chunk of the U.S. economy is suffering from the, the shortage. 
Jamil, do you see a, a long-term approach here that's going to work, or is this just going to mean we've totally decoupled, Taiwan is going to end up selling chips only outside of China, and the Chinese are going to develop their own soup-to-nuts chip industry? Well, look, I think that, Stuart, this is a continuing trend. We've already seen efforts by the U.S. to pull U.S. and allied capabilities increasing away from China. We've talked about decoupling. We've talked about onshoring, ally shoring, all those sort of those sort of shoring related words. And I think this plays into the Biden administration's uh, Build Back Better plan, where we're talking about doing stuff domestically, but also doing stuff alongside U.S. allies and trying to find a, a path forward that sort of keeps China out of some of these critical areas. That being said, I do think this is going to be a tough road to hoe for us, in part because TSMC is a, a fundamentally part of China, if you believe the one China policy. And that's China's view of it. And they've been flying aircraft over Chinese territory. They've been making threatening actions towards Taiwan. We've seen an, a carrier battle group headed that way. Historically, you could always understand the U.S. to sort of be there to protect Taiwan from any incursions by China. I don't think that is so clear anymore. It wasn't clear in the last administration. It's not that clear in this administration. And so this effort to sanction Chinese entities and to keep them out of the Taiwanese marketplace may result in China building domestic capacity. It may also cause them to look towards Taiwan and say, is that a capacity we should simply have since Taiwan is, at least in our understanding, notionally part of China? And so this is a real problem in the sense that we we have consistently allowed this problem to develop. We've allowed uh, our capacity to develop these capabilities and, and, and grow these technologies increasingly to happen overseas, including with allies, but we haven't done enough to invest here at home, right? EDA, electronic design automation, is sort of fundamentally an American capability. A lot of that capability is here, but we're now allowing that capability to be, uh, to be expropriated in China, both through IP theft, but also through just simple knowledge sharing. And so the question becomes, is China going to be able to make itself independent in this space? And are they going to look to put pressure on other American allies to, to keep them in the game for China, whether that's military pressure on Taiwan or economic pressure, like we saw them leverage against Japan through the threatens, threats on rare earth metals? And there are so many areas in which we and our allies depend fundamentally on Chinese raw materials or Chinese processing capabilities or Chinese development that it's going to be very hard uh, to step away from that. I do applaud the uh, the Biden administration for taking steps that are actually in line with what the prior administration did on this front. Again, the prior administration may have a, had a lot of problems, but they got it right in a lot of ways on China. And, and the Biden administration's efforts here are consistent with what the Trump administration did prior to prior to their departure from office. Yeah, this is the one bipartisan area of major policy shift that that we've seen. And uh, let me just ask David, there's a there's an industrial policy yep. bill that is going to have hearings this this week that is bipartisan as I understand it and it's meant to say we need to start investing in uh, industries where China is investing and trying to displace the US or at least declare independence from the US. Yeah, it's a good it's a good connection and follow on exactly. This is the Endless Frontier Act which one might prefer a different title. It's vaguely reminiscent of the I guess better than the Great Leap Forward Act or something like that, but it, it means well. Oh, come on. This is this is a Vannevar. This is a callback to the great era of, of U.S. technological innovation in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. You can't rag on the name like that. It's a good name. All right. It's a good name. It's a good name. It's better than the Great Leap Forward Act and better than a Soviet-style five-year plan. I mean, I do think it's... There's broad bipartisan recognition that China is a competitor and a threat, as Jamil was just saying. And I think there's broad recognition and probably strong bipartisan support for some effort to combine and do a whole of nation approach to this. I mean, I, I can recall, for example, Bill Barr, you know, recommending in public remarks when he was attorney general, something that in a different time and space might have been criticized as socialism with respect to 5G and a very strong national support for industry. Uh, and so I do think there's something that can be done here. And there's probably something that will be done because STEM is so important in science, technology, 
technology are so important to our capacity to compete with and hold our own against China on the world stage. But the, the central difficulty, as always, in American policymaking in this space is that China and other totalitarian governments really have an advantage, you might say, in their unity of effort and top-down policymaking for whole-of-nation responses. We have other things going for us, like freedom of thought and creativity and so forth, that are a net advantage on our side. The question is how you maintain those advantages in the context of an organized policy. It's not impossible, especially where there is bipartisan support, but it won't be easy. And $110 billion, even in today's America, ain't chump change. So they'll have to figure out a way to appropriate too. Well, it's an authorization. Uh, authorization, it's the worst spam on the internet in describing itself. No, Very few authorizations are ever met by appropriation. So we don't really know what uh, is actually being done here. It, it appears that it creates a it changed the name of the National Security Science Foundation to the National Science and Technology Foundation, says NSF and now NSTF is going to create a whole bunch of new technology programs and fund them mainly through universities. I, 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 it, the, the actual details are a lot less impressive than the idea that we need to do something. And the number of zeros, since we're not actually appropriating it, is, well, nice to see, not likely ever to eventuate. So I, I, I was more excited by the headline than by the details of this story. Yeah. Um, all right. I, I, while we're being depressed, Jordan... There's a story about how Intel missed the boat. I mean, they really are years behind after having set the pace for decades. They have missed a couple of generations in shrinking the size of their chips. And there was a long discussion of this uh, this this week. I don't know what lesson to draw from this. Uh, uh, the article seems to have blamed one CEO, uh, but I suspect that it's more than that. Yeah, I mean, th I think this is this is one of these questions. There are many different reasons, answers to some point to the sort of short-term nature of wanting to juice returns quarter over quarter as opposed to investing in, in long-term technology dominance. There also seem to be some pretty fundamental uh, technology decisions that Intel just went the wrong way on, betting on, 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 D on Nikon's DUV as opposed to ASML's EUV in order to really go past a uh, 10 nanometer and down to seven and five, which is where TSMC is currently making <laughs> outrageous amounts of money. It's, it's sad to look back on because the U.S. could not have asked to be in a better position when it came to leading at the future of the semiconductor industry in the late 90s and early and early 2000s and having thrown this thrown this lead away is I, I don't think I don't think you can just blame it on one on one person but the fact of the matter is that that we're now in a situation where the there's only one firm that's even trying a global foundry has given up at making chips the leading node and we have Samsung and and, and TSMTC a South Korean and and Taiwanese firms respectively are are reaping the out enormous returns that you get being able to make the make the fastest make chips on the on on the latest node. So if you have a have an M1 chip in your in a new Apple laptop you bought that's and, and are, have been blown away the, by the performance, that's something that only TSMC can can provide to the world and companies really pay top dollar for it. And the thing about uh, manufacturing on the leading edge is you get those. It's a virtuous cycle, right? Because you get paid the most amount of money for those chips. Which which allows you to put more money back into the R&D to, to keep advancing what you're doing. So Yeah, and that was Intel's virtual cycle, virtuous cycle for decades, that they could afford to spend billions on a new fab because they were raking in billions. And once they spent that money, they had the lead again, and AMD was always chasing them, and everybody else was always chasing them. But, you know, their, their market was always PCs and then servers. They made that jump. But they never were, they were chasing performance at a time when the mobile industry valued low power consumption. And that probably is where the first big chunk came out of their revenue stream. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, a lot of firms miss the mobile revolution, right? It's not just it's not just Intel, but the fact of the matter stands is this firm is still standing, right? They still have a pretty dominant or, or, or a truly dominant market share in the server space. Most of the computers that you and I own are made with Intel, not 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 ARM cores, and they have a new CEO who's trying to bring back the magic. So yeah, I, I'm not sure I'm qualified to give investment advice on the on the price of the IPO, Stuart. But what I will say is the the Chips Act. W- which will likely be appropriate at some point, is very important to to global foundries, probably even more so than Intel. Pat Pat Gelsinger, when he gave his his quarterly earnings report recently, said very explicitly, look, we're going to be building these fabs in Arizona, whether we get the few billion dollars that the federal government potentially has on offer or not, because they have the the sort of scale and the technology path where, and they see this chip shortage like everyone else. I mean, it's not only Intel that's putting in these hundred dozens to hundreds of billions of dollars of, of capital expenditure over the next few years. SK Hynix, Samsung, TSMC have also all announced outrageous amounts of money going towards this. So it's interesting thinking about if you're sitting in the commerce department who's going to be sort of doling out these funds, like where actually is the right place to be putting down billions of dollars? If there's so much market demand for fabrication capacity that it's likely to show up on U.S. shores, regardless of whether the U.S. puts a billion dollars here and there to to sweeten the sweeten the pot. It's going to show up, but it, 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 there's no guarantee it'll show up in the U.S. And so this might be the time to say, look, they're going to we know they're going to spend the money. We just need to give them enough justification to turn Arizona into the U.S. hub for Manufab excellence, and it'll be cheaper now than it would be if we had to pay them to build the whole fab. Now we're just competing to make sure that they build it here rather than uh, someplace else. So we'll see. All right, let's move because there's plenty more law and policy to talk about to Justice Thomas's opinion in the remarkably ironically named Biden versus Knight First Amendment Institute, which is really should continue to be called Trump versus the Knight uh, Institute. Uh, the That was originally a case in which Trump had blocked some people and uh, the Knight First Amendment Institute said, you can't block them. That's a government forum and you can't kick people out of a government forum. And then, of course, Trump got kicked out of that forum uh, as well. And the court says, oh, well, come on, it's moot already. We're not going to decide this case because even if we decided that it was a public forum, nobody would get to comment on Trump's tweets. So that's perfectly reasonable. Justice Thomas writes this long and, and I think labored effort to kind of make his views relevant to the question actually presented to the court. But the views are so interesting that I think they deserve digging into. David, do you want to explain what Justice Thomas is saying here? Sure. I mean, you are absolutely right that the last sentence of uh, his opinion here is that this petition, unfortunately, affords us no opportunity to confront the fascinating and interesting question that he just spent 11 or 12 single space pages discussing. (laughs) So it is a little bit of a law review article or an opinion piece attached for convenience to a case. It's not improper, I guess, but it's just, and he's not really hiding the ball. I think you read this in conjunction with Judge Silberman's recent concurrence in a DC circuit case to reflect the fact that sort of political conservatives and judicial members of the judiciary of a certain stripe are concerned that mainstream media, including particularly Justice Thomas is focused on digital platforms like Twitter, have too much power over speech. And Justice Thomas is saying the issue in this case was originally, as you said, that Trump was blocking certain people. But in the end, that power, he says, pales in comparison to the awesome power of Twitter to remove the account altogether for any reason or no reason, quoting from Twitter's terms of service. And so there's a concern that he's expressing here that gives rise to possibilities, I think mostly here in the statutory realm, where he seems to be inviting the possibility of regulating digital platforms either as common carriers or as public accommodations. It's not a perfect fit either way, and I think he more or less acknowledges that, but uh, there's an analogy to uh, some government folks gathering in a bar in a hotel room after hours as opposed to uh, renting a conference room and the different rules that have historically applied there. I think at some level, everyone 
is right to be concerned on the political left and right that so much political speech is now dependent on a relatively small number of pretty major digital platforms. But I think there's a pretty strong divergence of opinion that's likely to emerge if this debate continues, and as we ourselves saw in the warm-up today, as to the extent to which the political right is really being suppressed. And this is obviously a recurring theme, Stuart, on your podcast. And my partner and culprit partners, Nate Jones, usually joins battle more enthusiastically with you than, than I do. But I think the diversion here is likely to sort of not be about the relative concerns about private sector authority, but more about whether the right rather than the left is really being suppressed and punished and mistreated and whether Fox News and talk radio and One American Network still somehow give a tiny little uh, way for political conservatives to make their views known. Yeah, I, 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 I will say I'm convinced by personal experience that the, uh, the fix is in. Uh, LinkedIn actually removed one of my posts this week. Uh, in the post, I'll read it to you. You tell me if you think that this is misinformation. I said, the social media giants that won't let you say the 2020 election was rigged are the people who did their best to rig it. It turns out the Hunter Biden laptop was genuine and scandalous, according to the Daily Mail. And then I linked to a, a, a Daily Mail story that you, if, if you haven't read, you need to read. It will help you understand Joe Biden better than the last 45 profiles in the media. But uh, and not necessarily in a bad way. He, it, it's kind of heartbreaking to see him deal with Hunter yeah. Biden. But uh, it was genuine. It there were scandals. There will continue to be scandals coming out of that laptop, uh, and the social media just shut it down. Would not allow even the the Daily Mail to or, or the New York Post to be linked to because they had some phony argument that maybe it could be Russian misinformation. That was all bogus. It's turned out to be bogus. And we're not even allowed to comment on the fact that the social media uh, giants did that without getting our posts removed. I, th I thought that was really interesting. Stuart, I, I, I can only say that I, I would imagine that most of the major social media platforms have specific Stuart Baker suppression policies in effect, <laughs> and justifiably so, uh, given your said. track record. Actually, Twitter allowed that. I, I want to give them credit. Twitter allowed it, and, and LinkedIn didn't, which is odd. You don't think of LinkedIn as a political platform. Maybe they just have super tight policies on that sort of speech at all. Well, it's, um, it, it, actually, it's it's fascinating. I decided to say they threatened I could lose my account, yada, yada. Uh, I said, yes, yeah, screw you. Uh, and posted a whole bunch of things that kind of snuck up my the post they removed, uh, basically saying things like, uh, here's a really interesting article from the Daily Mail that says the Hunter Biden laptop was genuine and scandalous. And then I linked to it. And then I said, and doesn't that tell you that there was something suspicious about what the social media giants were telling us? And then I said, basically, the social media giants suppressed this story to help the Biden administration, the Biden campaign, and now they won't let uh, us talk about it. And that they left up. So it turns out that what got their goat was using the word rigged in mm. this context. So they have probably a policy left over from some period in after the election that says you're not allowed to say the election was rigged. Uh, and therefore, saying the election was rigged or saying that there was an effort to rig the, the, the election, even when we're not talking about changing votes and things of that sort, uh, they weren't drawing the distinction. Yeah. But, well, you know, this has nothing to do with legitimate debate. They are just suppressing a, a point of view. They think it's a good idea because they don't want the election called into question, but it deserves to be called into question after after their behavior in 2020. 
Yeah. Well, just again, with a reference back to clients and bias, and so nobody should listen to a word I say on this or any other topic, frankly, for that matter. I would say that I do think that there are kinks to be worked out in screening for content. And if we're going to do that at scale, it's probably going to have to be automated, which means it's going to result in over and under inclusion at the margins. I personally, again, have no problem with suppressing all of your uh, social media <laughs> posts. I think it would be good for America. But but I mean, I think we all have to acknowledge the complexity of the of the problem. Regulating speech is not easy. It may be essential, but it's certainly not easy when you have as much speech as we have going on. That's actually something Justice Thomas talks about in his concurrence, which is just the sheer volume of published speech. I mean, this really is a revolution that can be analogized to the printing press and just the massive democratization and spread of publishing ability where you get one-to-many speech channels opening up all over the place. And it turns out there's a lot of garbage that comes with that. And I guess the question is the marketplace of ideas really functioning as designed or do we have externalities and other kinds of problems that need to be addressed? And if so, how? So I think the analogy I use sometimes in my own mind is to Egypt and the, the Arab Spring when Twitter suddenly made it the Sadat regime unviable, there was a big eruption of popular populism that benefited the Muslim Brotherhood. They came in, they did things that the establishment in Egypt really didn't like, and the establishment fought back successfully, suppressed the Muslim Brotherhood, gained control of social media in ways that Sadat had not, uh, and they are a largely stronger establishment in terms of their control of media than past regimes. That's not so different from what happened in 2016 and 2020. The, the establishment of the United States did not like the Trumps being elected, and they were absolutely determined to make sure it didn't happen again, and they have succeeded. You may not lie. I'm not a Trump fan. <laughs> I mean, that's a bit strong, Stuart. Don't you think the voters yeah. had something to do with it at the margins? As they did okay. in, the, uh, in the elections in Egypt. But, they, well, but uh, when social media says you cannot say true things that would bear on the fitness for office of Joe Biden, I mean, I, nobody thought Trump was... God's I mean, well, is there anything on that laptop about like the alleged corruption allegations or is yeah, it just there is some, some, some stuff it in looked which... mostly like it was Hunter and his drugs and girlfriends, but um, it was at least those um, were the pictures. He wanted to be a porn actor. It's just it's sad and appalling. And, and there's a picture of him having developed meth mouth. It's just awful. But yeah, there are there are suggestions that there was money in some of these deals for, quote, the big guy, which many people think was the vice president at the time. So yeah, I, I, I think there, the, the, there are things, and there's some reason to believe that at his worst, Hunter was still being protected by and babysat by the Secret Service when they had no particular authority, but the, you can imagine they might want to have done that for the, the former vice president. So there are some scandals that probably ought to be looked at. And it, the fact is that had that been looked at during the campaign, it would have made a difference in a close election. And the determination not to allow that to happen was visible. Go ahead. But Stuart, I mean, let's be serious here about the fact that we know this is Jamil, unquestionably, right? this is Jamil, unquestionably, yeah. that the Russians sought to interfere in the 2016 election. Let's also be sure. clear. The, it was obvious. I don't think it was obvious at the time because no, no, the, clearly, the only successful interference in that election was when they disclosed what was on the DNC and other computers that they hacked. This business about Facebook ads, that's a, just a joke. Well, I completely disagree, Stuart. I actually think that the Russians were extremely successful in stoking discontent and anger in this country amongst citizens of all types. And I do think actually they contributed significantly to the discord and disagreement amongst American politicians that took place over the last four years, made Donald Trump largely ineffective in office and made and created the conditions under which we saw impeachment happen twice. And, and a large of that was due to Donald Trump and his own personality and his own oh, yeah, behavior in office. The, the well, Russians but, didn't make him do those things. The Russians, but the Russians absolutely enhanced 
and magnify those efforts. And then we've seen now in additional reporting from the Office of Director of National Intelligence, clear evidence that the Iranians and Russians sought to engage in similar activities again in, 20, in the 2020 election. So the idea so somehow that, that we don't, well, no, no, this, I, I thought we were talking about, about, about Justice Thomas's opinion about the regulation of social media. I didn't realize this was a session on, on, on the Biden laptop, but I think the point is- I, 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 The point is that was the biggest corporate interference in the 2020 election was the suppression of that story. And it potentially changed the outcome of the election. The idea that four or five people in Silicon Valley have the authority to switch a close election that way by just closing off uh, the the avenues for people to hear yeah. about the details of the laptop is pretty striking. And it's the source of the discontent about that power. Who appointed well, them, for God's sake? Count me as a conservative who believes that private industry doesn't have First Amendment obligations and has responsibility over its own networks and make decisions about what it does. If people want to speak, there are plenty of public forums in which they can speak. They don't need to go on Twitter or LinkedIn or Facebook. If they choose to use those fora, it is up to the private companies, because I'm a conservative who believes in the private sector making decisions on their own, free from government intervention and influence. That's the kind of conservative that I think represents the Republican Party and the conservative movement. But look, if we want to go back to the days of the FCC- element anyway. <laughs> oh, uh, sorry, I, I call them Republicans, but whatever. But it, that's fine. If we want to be the kind of conservative movement or Republican Party that believes in going back to the fairness doctrine- the, the ill-regarded fairness doctrine of the of latter years, so be it, so, so be it, but so I don't think you know, that's... Let's, let's talk about the fairness doctrine briefly. Uh, uh, the biggest complaint about the fairness doctrine is that it produced bland and middle-of-the-road uh, uh, media. Boy, we might kill for bland and middle-of-the-road media these days. Americans believe in free speech and fighting about ideas. What we don't believe is having foreigners come in and influence that free speech. Now, we might not like how these private sector companies on the platforms they own and have created are doing their regulation of that. And there are a lot of ways we can address that. The legislature can get involved in that. They probably shouldn't. It's sort of it's sort of contrary to our views on free speech about the government in interfering and regulating private sector actions on how they create speech platforms. But Again, remember, this isn't a public park. This isn't a government-controlled space. This is a private platform that you don't have to use. So I actually so, think- So, so Justice uh, Thomas says- Yeah, there's a couple of sure, things- Sure, yep. you, you, you also don't have to use the regulated railroads. You can walk the Oregon Trail if you want to. You can swim the Mississippi and you don't have to use the toll bridge. But nobody thinks that's an alternative. It's the Charles uh, and River. And that's why we had the regulation. That's that's great. If we want if we want to get in the business of regulating and the disaster of regulation that has come from regulating public utilities like the railroads or the common carriers, that has not been sort of I think something that conservatives look to and say, hey, that was a great idea. Let's do more of that. By the way, I want to also note that came from a history that those entities were government-created monopolies granted by the government, which is what led to their regulation. The internet and all the speech and freedom and, and dialogue and debate, some of it foreign influence and some of it not has come not from government monopolies, but from private sector innovation. If we want to private monopolies, let's let's, let's, be, to, let's be candid. These are private monopolies. To, they control this space and the likelihood they're going to be dislodged except by some other adjacent monopoly is, is Stuart, zero. I'm old enough to remember Prodigy being the monopoly on the internet, <laughs> Genie being the monopoly. No, no, no. Wait, hold too. on. Let me CompuServe. <laughs> I was about to get there. Netcom. I remember when UUNet was the was the primary provider of broadband. I mean, let's be serious. The technology. Oh, MySpace. MySpace used to be the dominant social media company of its of, of my generation when I was growing up. It's a joke now. So let's be serious. This market innovates rapidly. Bad ideas are discarded all the time. The idea that we need the government to step in and regulate this highly innovative and probably the most productive industry in the history of the United States. I, they are telling us. They are telling us what we can say. They control a national conversation. Let's be candid about that. You can say, oh, well, they're private, but this is a national conversation that is controlled in which everybody other than five or six owners is operating at the sufferance of those five or six owners. And you speak or don't speak depending on how they feel about what you're saying. I'm and they are now using it to protect their own business interests by saying, you can't say that we interfered in the 2020 election. 
That's astonishing. And that is fundamentally un-American. You can tell me uh, that the First Amendment doesn't really apply, but free speech ought to apply. And they are not, they are suppressing free speech. Well, one, if we want to go back to the Hunter Biden laptop, just to be clear, everyone heard the story. Nobody's confused about the fact there was a Hunter Biden laptop that it had on. Nobody heard the details. Of course they did. Everyone heard about what was on the laptop. Everyone heard about the stuff about the big guy and about the pictures and the drug use. Nobody in America doesn't know about the Hunter Biden laptop. The idea somehow that was so suppressed that nobody heard about it. And that's what resulted in the election results. What resulted in the election results, Stuart? Resulted in the election results was Donald Trump's behavior in office. Okay, that is the bottom line. It had nothing to do. Let's be serious. And by the the idea that conservatives would be advocating for massive regulation of our most innovative industry by the government strikes me as catastrophically bad and completely anti-conservative. It, it is fascinating to me, just having looked at this Justice Thomas concurrence, which we started with and maybe we can wrap back to here, is that on the one hand, he definitely talks about limitations on rights to exclude. So something like fairness or must carry doctrine is strongly uh, hinted at here in the idea of regulation of common carriers and public accommodation. But then at the end, he also says that private entities, which normally are not subject to the First Amendment, might become subject to the First Amendment if they're acting under coercion from the federal government. And so if there's coercion on Twitter to block speech, for example. And so it's, I think, an interesting, the the debate between Stuart and Jamil, two real rock-ribbed conservatives and on on this podcast is sort of, I think, an indicator of, of a larger debate that's taking place in the judiciary and elsewhere among conservatives around the extent to which government should or shouldn't or may not regulate, limit these digital speech platforms. I don't know what's going to happen, but I look forward to more entertaining debate. We will revisit this for (laughs) sure. And I agree. I'll be hiding under my desk, but listening carefully. (laughs) So Thomas's opinion is mostly musing and a kind of signal sending to the lower courts that these are serious issues. Yeah, uh, and to uh, litigants potentially. And, exactly. and I see it very much in keeping with the Silberman concurrence that I mentioned, which attacks the New York Times versus Sullivan actual malice standard for publications in the media. I think the that these are it's not a coincidence that these have arisen at and around the same time. And and I don't think they're just sort of like Leibniz and Newton discovering calculus in response to a social conditions. I, I would expect these guys are talking, not that there's anything wrong with that. I just mean, I think this is an idea that that is taking hold now, I like to think I, I like to think they all listen to the Cyber Law podcast. That must be it, Stuart. You are the root of this conservative judicial revolution in the making. Outstanding. That will get me banned on Twitch, which now has decided that it will ban people or uh, restrict their access to Twitch based yeah. on things they do completely outside of Twitch. Yeah, this uh, is really interesting, and so you should not go, you know, throw eggs at Justice Thomas's house or anything like that, because if you do that sort of thing according to this, you could get off of Twitch. And I mean, to me, the most interesting sort of aspect of this is what it actually means for a social media platform to try to police offline behavior. You can see what's going on your own platform and you can do content moderation. And if the word rigged appears within three of Stuart, within three of Baker, you can set your AI to block it. And and again, you don't even need the word rigged. If it's Stuart within three of Baker... (laughs) automatic block. But I mean, they have to hire a law firm. They may have to hire investigators. I don't really, I guess I'm just not totally clear in my own mind, like how they can do this without expending just massive resources in in either doing independent investigations or verifications and or in weeding out like the poison pill calls and other kinds of things that are going to inevitably result. So I'm not necessarily... I, I don't know if the most interesting part of it is just sort of the, the the size and scale of the obligation. And Twitch is, I guess, gamer platform relatively narrow. But well, and and like in like LinkedIn, owned by Microsoft, which apparently is late to the political correctness party, but on board with enthusiasm. Uh, yeah, I, I this is a hard one. I, I I think it's at the end of the day, it, it seems like they are 
trying to replace like the police and prosecutors. If people engage in illegal behavior offline, there are remedies that don't involve Twitch. And you wouldn't, you would think that be that's where truth will be found uh, in trials rather than uh, by hiring a law firm whose identity they haven't disclosed. It's, it's very odd. At the same time, there are aspects of this that are not crazy. If, if somebody's been convicted of uh, molesting children, you probably don't want them on Twitch. So uh, there, there are times when behavior outside of uh, the service is relevant to whether you want people on your service. I suspect this, rather like Airbnb, which also has a similar rule, it's going to end up being, oh, well, if you're too conservative, we just don't want you around. I was with you to the very last sentence of that, <laughs> that Stuart. You, you lost me there. But I mean, I, I think you're right. It's, it, I can understand the impulse for it. I don't have a terribly strong view on it. I was more just thinking about it as if I were an executive at a company that decided to do this and thinking, my God, what kind of resources and how are we going to do it and how are we going to run it so that it's principled and fair and, and avoid making a lot of mistakes? I think this is a pretty bold venture. Yep. And again, subject to the don't listen to me because client biases, I think it is a, it's a, it's, it's going to be a very interesting thing to watch how this plays out and whether and to what extent others similarly situated decide to take it on at a larger scale with their larger platforms. All right, let's go to something where I suspect we agree more uh, than we have. The Biden administration has sorted out its cyber nominations and by and large, at least from my point of view, they got it right. They, Chris Inglis is going to become the cyber director in the White House. And he's a, a very, he's a former deputy uh, director at NSA and one of the more creative and thoughtful folks in sort of cyber policy making. And then Jen Easterly, who was widely mooted for that position, although the, lots of people said there might be personality conflicts uh, with Ann Neuberger has ended up uh, with an actually what I think is a more responsible job, which is running CISA at DHS. And then the guy who was supposedly going to run CISA, Rob Silvers, he has been moved into the policy job, which is the job I used to have, where he'll get to say a lot about cyber policy, but will also handle all the other policy issues. And given Jen's technical background compared to Rob's, I think that's probably the right call. So, uh, Jamil, David, you probably know these guys as well. Any thoughts on this? You want to go, Jamil? I mean, I yeah, yeah, sh sure. I, I know Chris pretty well, and uh, and I know Jen really well. I don't know Rob as well, but I will say that I think that you're right, Stuart, writ large, that the, the right people got the right positions. I do, I do wonder about the National Cyber Director. It's a tough position, given as you point out, Ann Newbarger's role in the White House. But I think. Chris Inglis is the kind of guy who who could be really successful in that role and really make it something productive. I, I was never a fan of that position. I told the Cyber, Cyber Solarium Commission, I thought it was a bad idea to have a Senate confirmed, another Senate confirmed individual yep. in the White House, and that the White House would fight it as they did, as both in the, in the prior administration and this administration, frankly, fought it and held off for a long time. But now appointing a serious person like Chris Inglis in that job is a good move. And I think he'll do a good job in that role. Jenny really is a terrific pick, I think, for CISA. CISA is in desperate need of help. Chris Krebs did a great job getting it up and running, but he was uh, unceremoniously terminated uh, by the prior administration. And I do think they need help building out this public-private capability and collective defense and really bringing together industry and government and really, frankly, amping up their capabilities because this has now got a lot of money they just came into 650 million dollars in the in the in the rescue package and we'll probably see more they've been asking for an increase above their two billion dollars that they had prior year and so they're gonna be getting some big some big change to do work with and jen easterly is i think an inspired pick to help lead that agency and maybe get them some real technical chops and then rob silvers who again i don't know as well but who i think a lot of people really like and, and think was a credible person policy is a great role for him it allows him to spread across not just cyber which he knows well but a lot of other areas. And so I think actually a great series of three picks by the administration in this front. Frankly, I've been heartened by their other picks. Rob Joyce at NSA Cybersecurity Directorate and 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 at the, the White House position, Jake Sullivan's National Security Advisor. I'll be honest, like I don't agree with a ton of the things the administration is doing, uh, like the like getting back to the Iran nuclear deal, which I know we won't talk about here. But I do think that on the cyber front, they have picked some serious good people for these roles. And, and now it's a question, 
Can they make these parts? And Paul Nakasone remaining at, the, at NSA uh, and Cyber Command and keeping those two, by the way, together, which I think is a critically important thing, uh, I think is important and could be a real success for this administration. We'll see what happens going forward. But uh, look, we're on the verge of what are potentially serious coming threats. We've already seen what happened with the solar storm and, and Microsoft Exchange hacks. I do worry about what's going to happen in light of these potential attacks on Iran and their nuclear facility, whether Iran will respond against the United States or others. And so I do think there's an opportunity here for these leaders to really take the ball and help better protect American industry and government, frankly, from these cyber threats from players like Russia, Iran, North Korea, and China. Yep. Yeah, I'll just pile on a little bit, I guess, with that. I, I mean, I, I know Chris very well, Jen a little, and Rob by reputation, I think very highly of all of them. Chris in particular, I had the privilege and ple pleasure of working with him very closely in beginning in 2009 when I was at the National Security Division and he was deputy at NSA and there were some very severe difficulties that NSA was having, big challenges, and so we spent a lot of quality time together in the crucible. He is a model of grace under pressure, of integrity, of creativity, of thought, and maybe most notably of clarity of expression. The man can explain stuff to small brains like mine in in wonderfully efficient and evocative prose. He will be a really strong leader, I think, on cyber issues. There's a lot of challenges in the position structurally, as Jamil was talking about. We're emphasizing these days unity of effort in cyber. And so there's a certain amount of irony in having two, not just one, cyber yes. leaders in the uh, White House. But I think that he and Anne, who must uh, and surely do know each other from their NSA days, will be able to get along. And I will just also echo Jamil's broader point about Rob Joyce and Paul Nakasone, both of whom I've had the pleasure of working with and both of whom are really excellent. So I think the cyber lineup for the Biden administration is looking very good. And that's a good thing because the challenges are obviously I, I think the last time they worked together, Anne reported to... Chris, so this will be a flip, but my guess is they'll manage to work that out. Probably at the end of the day, having good people in an interagency process only means that the president gets good options. It doesn't mean he'll pick them. And lots of other people get to play and influence the final decisions. So we just don't know how this is going to work out with the, what the president and the people who are closest to him politically and otherwise uh, are going to do to shape cyber policy. But yeah, it, it will not lack for talent in the preparation of options and the briefing of the president. The CISA job is critical because who holds that job is going to make a difference about whether CISA makes the big step from something that was, I won't call it a personality project, but it, Krebs uh, carried CISA and gave it credibility when it might not have earned it on its own. Uh, and he managed to build it up. It's still not as, it, he, he built it up to the point where now when it fails, we're surprised and disappointed, as opposed to saying, yeah, well, that's what I expected. I, the Jen's job will be to make sure that it doesn't fail. All right, we've got a bunch more stories. I'm gonna try to get through them very quickly. Ad tech espionage, U.S. senators are really worried about uh, the amount of information you can get just by joining the bidding on ads. Jamil, this actually does sound some, like something we should be nervous about, notwithstanding that it's Ron Wyden who is carrying the torch for it. Yeah, no, Stuart, I think this is obviously a, an issue. And I think that what you have here is a situation where you've got to have this public-private you know, discussion about what the right, what, right approach to these threats in whether it's the advertising space or the online speech space, we've got to figure out how to bring uh, industry and government closer together. I'm not sure government regulation, again, or laws are the ones best adapted to, to fix this issue. But I do think that's an area where we've got to figure out a path forward because what we can't have is exploitation of this environment by by foreign actors and not be able to execute a national policy that protects the nation, protects our national security in this space. So if you're looking for a place where big social will try to shape the debate, this is where all their money comes from. And they are going to fight regulation or anything that interferes with efficient uh, digital ad auctions pretty hard. So this is going to be an ugly under the blankets fight, I'm guessing, because what the U.S. is worried about and what makes 
the ad company's money turn out to be very different uh, things. And so uh, we're going to we're going to see a fight over this, I, I predict. And kind of uh, this is sort of warms your heart story. Cryptocurrency hitman is hired to, uh, on the dark web. The Italians figure out the origin of the cryptocurrency, trace it back, arrest the guy who hired the hitman. Uh, and there still is no case I'm aware of in which somebody actually was hired on the hitman on the dark web to carry out a hit. This is all stories we've been scaring ourselves with for 10 years. Hasn't happened yet as far as I know. David, Singapore, people We're are crowdfunding. You don't live there because with your active misinformation and disinformation campaign of falsehoods, you would be sued by the prime minister for defamation and probably locked up and put in debtor's prison when you failed to pay the judgment. And uh, PayPal would love to say, oh, I'm sorry, Stuart Baker can't crowdfund his <laughs> fines. Uh, only people in Singapore. Well, the glass is half empty to you. I'd say that it's lucky that in Singapore, if you say things that are false against the government, you can get in trouble and sued for defamation. They've got a law to that effect. Apparently, it's been used 70 times, a couple of times notoriously. So then, yes, the fines get crowdsourced through social media or otherwise so that they can be paid by a little bit by everyone. I suppose that's the... That's the positive aspect of this. But it does, I think, highlight some of the difficulties that you face. And, and crowdsourcing is kind of a workaround when you really start arbitrating a truth and, and falsehood in online speech. Uh, yeah. and, and I will only say uh, that conservatives and uh, liberal targets have been prevented from crowdfunding their defenses, for example, in the United States, uh, much more than targets of conservatives have been prevented from doing that. Okay, here's one. Uh, ransom gangs have a new tactic. I, 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 this is creative. First, they steal your customer list. They, they encrypt it. They say, you need to buy the decryption key. You say, no, I don't want to. They say, well, then we'll publish the, the, all the personal data of your customers. And you say, I don't think you'll really withhold it even if I pay you. And they say, fine, we're going to tell your customers that we're about to do that. And then you'll have to pay us. Uh, so they're, now ransomware gangs are sending out emails to the customers of the people they have intruded on telling them that there's a problem and urging them to lobby for ransom payments. It's creative. I don't know how effective it's going to be in the long run because it also implies that they're willing to release the information, notwithstanding having promised to get rid of it if the ransom is paid. And finally, let me just close. Both Facebook and LinkedIn announced that 500 million or more of their users had uh, data scraped from their sites. In Facebook's case, a couple of years ago, LinkedIn data may be more recent, but it looks like the arguments about disclosure here are kind of, well, why should we disclose? It wasn't a breach. It was really something that you could, you could always get somebody's phone number uh, or email address from our site if you uh, knew the trick. This is just somebody who did it on an industrial scale and has assembled all this list, uh, and there's nothing people can do about it anyway, so we're not sure we have an obligation to disclose. There's going to be a, a debate about this for sure, and I think I, I just didn't feel we could cover the week without noting that half a billion users here, half a billion users there, You pretty soon you're talking about a lot of users. I'll stop there because we've gone just past the hour. Thanks to David, thanks to Jamil, thanks to Jordan, thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 357 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Join us again next week as we once again provide the news of technology, security, privacy, and government. Mm -hmm.